You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, Batman Ranking Podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going? Ah, it's going pretty good. As usual, this series, this show, occupies two spaces in time. The time at which we record and the time at which the uh, the people listen. And uh, they're both holidays. Uh, they're going to listen to this at uh, Christmas. And we're recording this at Thanksgiving. So I'm fe- feeling very festive. I have poured myself a glass of nog that may or may not contain some uh, delicious, delicious bourbon. It's actually my first hard nog that I've ever had before. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. I got an update for you on the arcade ah we got uh we got a couple of new cabinets uh one is a, a galaga reproduction oh nice so it's uh it's all black and uh arcade one up has stepped up this one has light up buttons but the new one the new fancy one time crisis dude yeah and Time Crisis is cool, right? And this has this this has that hot pedal action, but the Time Crisis cab comes with point blank. Oh, nice! Yeah, and uh, for you kids who have never played Point Blank before, it's basically just a shooting game that is nothing but mini games. So you know you can fire it up for just quick four little you know little shooting games, and it's just it's like a carnival game that runs on light guns. It's perfect. Uh, so, you know, I'm just walking around my fucking house like, oh, let me just play some point blank for a couple of minutes. It's really nice. I enjoy it. It's been a happy space over this over this Thanksgiving break. That sounds awesome. I would love to get something on one of my consoles where I can just play classic arcade games. I mean, I'd rather have the, the cabinets, but I do not have the space for that. Not with the eventual <laughs> comic library that that would be where that space would go. Not all of us have our library on a tablet. Some of us love the smell <laughs> of paper. The smell uh, of, of the addictive, addictive paper. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Amazon is trying to push me uh, into paper. Because of their awful comics. Yeah. That they're getting rid of. Yeah. It's going over to the Kindle. I think well, your whole library goes on to, into a Kindle app, doesn't it? That, yeah. Since they nerfed the Comixology app, you know, months and months and months ago, I haven't used it. So I've been using the Kindle app uh, because the Kindle app had the built-in functionality that I have been screaming at Comixology for, for like ages. I want to be able to make reading lists. And in Kindle, you can just make folders. So it has been very convenient now for months to just put all the books I need to read for the column or for the show into a little dedicated folder. And it's been really neat. Uh, really nice but uh but yeah amazon as a whole fucking sucks because um the standalone comiXology platform was so nice right searching for books trying to find the books that i needed now 
you know, you're like three clicks away from somebody's 9.8 graded, you know, detective 785, which is like, that's not what I want. That's not what I want at all. That is completely inconvenient to what one would think that would be the top thing, which would be Amazon just selling their own dang products instead of being a reseller. Yeah, I don't know why anything else from the Comixology storefront would come up. And I don't know why they don't have some engineer fixing that problem, unless the whole idea was just to bring people into into Comixology and then push them on to whatever else Amazon has to sell them. Oh, what? A large megacorp trying to get you to buy more things than you need? How could such a thing be possible? So... Just a funny story for those, well, not funny story, but something that I was amused by. Uh, before we signed on, Amber and I were catching up on some Jeopardies because we've been we've been behind. There've been too much, too many things going on. We're we're about a week behind, and one episode we go, we get to final Jeopardy. Ooh, okay, and... okay. Uh, hit me, hit me with the the question. All right. Or, excuse me. I, I apologize. Hit me with the answer. I want to get the exact phrasing of it. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. In his first appearance in 1902, he was described as betwixt and between a boy and a bird. Uh, What's the category? Fictional characters. Betwixt a boy and a bird. And it's our literary characters, literary characters. And what was the year? 1902. I don't like this response, but it's all I have right now. Uh, Who is Christopher Robin? You know, that is not a bad guess. That is one that came into my mind as well. I actually thought Christopher Robin or even Winnie the Pooh because Owl and Christopher Robin. But it took me a second, but then the the correct answer came to mind, which is who is Peter Pan? Ah, very good. Very good. However, the three contestants, first guy couldn't come up with anything. Second person got it right. Third one, who is Batman? Who is Batman? Which struck me as third contestant also had no idea and just threw something at the the wall. Which, for Final Jeopardy, I kind of, you got to respect that. If you're guessing wildly during single or double Jeopardy, no. But you have to answer Final Jeopardy. So almost better a dumb answer than no answer. That wasn't necessarily a dumb answer. Because, you know, sometimes a Hail Mary pays off. That one did not. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to say Ichabod Crane, right? But that's mm. the, the completely wrong time for that. Yeah, it's much, much earlier. And I think the Winnie the Pooh stuff is a little later. But it made me think of that, that period. Because Pooh just came into the public domain. Which means the, the the literary poo, right. not the Disney adaptation of poo. Make sure you got your shit straight out there. Yes, he has to be completely naked, not wearing a red shirt. There you go. That's how it works. But yeah, he was he was yeah he was a little later. He was the twenties by the looks of things. First publication, nineteen twenty four. But yeah, little appearance of Batman there, and I was like, ah, well. We, we can always throw that in at the beginning of the show, and it, it is at least somewhat on topic. Somewhat. <laughs> yes. You know, as my buddy John pointed out over the weekend when we were hanging out, you know, if people tune into this podcast for the first 20 minutes, often it could just 
be assumed to be a Star Trek podcast. So, <laughs> but we are not here to talk about Star Trek. We are not here to talk about either Winnie the Pooh or Peter Pan. It is the anniversary of First Contact, though. It is, yes. Not not when you listen to this, but when we record it. But we are instead here to once again talk about Batman. And as Will pointed out, this is dropping a few days before Christmas. So once again, we are back in holiday stories around Gotham. Now, I say holiday stories, they are really Christmas stories because there aren't a lot of other holidays that are celebrated in Batman stories. I would like to see a few more. There are at least a couple of Batwoman Hanukkah stories in some of the DC holiday specials, as Kate is Jewish. But really, it's just Christmas stories. Maybe someday when Disney absorbs Warner, there will be Life Day Batman stories. Batman teaming up with some Wookiees. I don't want it to happen. There was some guy at the comic shop last week asked, you know, when did they think Warner was going to license the DC characters to Marvel? And it's a common fanboy question. And the answer to that is never, because however much money they might make on the licensing, the possibility that Disney could make more money, Warner will never do that. They just don't want the competition. Uh, you know, we talked about this. Uh, I guess it was, was it on air? Maybe it was on air. Who knows? With the new Batman Amazon Prime movie. Yes. Um, I think it was on the uh, a bonus episode. These mega corporations do not know what they're doing. Uh, the strategy changes from quarter to quarter. So um, I think quite possibly, ultimately, if Warner decides that there is more money to be made, uh, their pride be damned uh, in licensing Batman, I think it could happen. But only if there's more money to be made on the licensing than on the actual publishing. Oh, yes, of course. Also, Disney isn't going to license DC characters to publish the comics because comics are a loss leader. Yeah. They would only license the DC characters if they got the chance to do movies and TV. And Warner is never going to give that up because, to quote Krusty the Clown, that's the sweetest plum. Disney princess, Krusty the Clown. But... This is not Batman either. This is something else. So let, let's get into some uh, Batman Christmas stories, shall we? Let's do it. The first story of the night is Christmas. This is Batman Volume 1, Number 9. The writer is Bill Finger, with pencils by Bob Kane, inks by Jerry Robinson and George Russos, letters by Russos, no colorist or editor is credited, and the cover date is March of 1942. Stopping off at an orphanage, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson hear about a young man whose father is in jail for life, but claims innocence. Batman and Robin begin to investigate to bring a little holiday miracle to one father and son. As I often point out with these Golden Age stories where Bob Kane is credited as penciler, that is a very loose creditation. Kane was known to have many of his many many of his books ghosted. 
So odds are Jerry Robinson was heavily involved in the pencils of this book, but we can't know for sure. At least I don't know the art styles well enough to say what is Kane, what is Robinson, what is some of these other pencilers. It's easier as you get later on with guys like Dick Sprang, where it's like, well, that's clearly a completely different style, but it's still credited to Bob Kane because that was the deal in Kane's contracts. Speaking of contracts and mega corporations. Pretty sweet deal. Uh, Other people do work and you get the credit for it. Yep. King of the ghosts. I mean, he would have been credited as writer on this story too, because the whole thing in his contract was that he was credited as the creator of all the Batman material. Nobody else could get credit. Weird. He was narcissist, might be the, the a nice <laughs> way to put it. Again, we need to track down copies of his autobiography and read that for a bonus episode, because I'm sure it is wild. I thought this was a good little book had the holiday message the theme and we had this uh ticking clock that really kept the narrative running uh just just a great little read really enjoyed it yeah this is uh, being that it is batman number nine the first holiday batman story and it does sort of set a precedent for regular batman christmas stories and there are some bits in here that are a bit roll your eyes at it in a, in a Bob Cratchit and Tim Cratchit. Yeah. The fact that they, they had those names and it, it's not like Christmas Carol was something people hadn't heard about at this point. Christmas Carol has been a going concern, but at this point for decades. And it doesn't even like tie into a theme. It's just a half-ass nod, right? Cause it's not like there's, there's no Scrooge character. There's no real connection to Cratchit aside from the fact that he was poor and decided to steal, although Bob Cratchit never stole. Yeah. Uh, and, and the bad guy, I mean, guess the bad guy does see a ghost, but it's more Hamlet than it is Scrooge. Yeah, just a, a weird choice there. But otherwise, sound, sound book. We are going to take a, a brief detour for two minutes in the middle here, partially because this is, you know, a 12-page story, and so we have a little time in our allotted bit for this story. But I'm curious. Favorite Scrooge? Ooh, uh, Alistair Sim, uh, without a doubt. Partly because that was my father's Scrooge. Uh, that was the one that we always watched. But I thought he, of, of all the Scrooges that I have seen, he was best able to convey the Christmas morning Scrooge. Just the sheer joy and light in that man's eyes really nails the performance. I can't even think of a second place. Uh, If I ever saw the Patrick Stewart Christmas Carol, I'm sure it would rank up there. Agree on Alistair Sim is number one. Absolutely. Number two for me, Sir Michael Kine. Muppet Christmas Carol. Have you seen that uh, that internet meme comparing Michael Caine and Tim Curry? Yes, yes. Yeah. I was about to say exactly that. Michael Caine treated the Muppets like people. Tim Curry treated himself like a Muppet. It seems absolutely true. <laughs> but Patrick Stewart is good. Patrick Stewart is quite good. And if you get the chance, I know it is available. It's probably available on Audible. I have it on CD. Patrick Stewart reading the novella 
just on stage. He used to do it every December for a while. He would just go on a Broadway or the the West End at London, and he would just him and a and a copy of Christmas Carol. And he would just read it, and it's he's oh he's good. Oh, but back to Batman. I just you know that little aside <laughs> that you know thinking about Scrooge and that my theater is putting on Christmas Carol right now, so I've got a lot of Christmas Carol thoughts. But back we go. I like a lot of how this story is laid out. The ticking clock is good. It's not a mystery. I mean, you know who done it, the whole thing, but it it's got a, a 40s crime story vibe to it. I could hear this story on the radio with Boston Blackie or Richard Diamond or one of those PIs who, you know, stumble across the kid whose dad is in jail for murder but who didn't do it and has to go and bring in the guy who did. So I think my favorite Christmas story outside of gift of the Magi, because I'm I'm a sucker for the classics dragnets, the big little Jesus. Yes. I think. Yes. Yep. That's Uh, the big little Jesus, the big baby Jesus, one or the other, the little boy who wished for the, the sled it really gets you. It's a re- that is a real good one. Miguel wants to know if he's going to hell now. Oh. Uh, the only Dragnet story that is not based loosely in reality. Yes. I love the beginning where Tim is in the orphanage and these bullies are vicious. They're just terrible little shits. And There's no just- Santa Claus. Yeah, and your dad's in jail. And he's never getting out. No, my dad's just on a trip. He's going to come back. Oh, oh, poor Tim. Poor little Tim. I am surprised that Hal Fink, and and that's a name too for our villain, wasn't Scrooge, but Fink is an equally delightful villain name for this story. It could have been like Ebenezer Fink. Yeah, you'd think they would have done one or the other there. Do something to follow up on that, right? You'd think. You could make Cratchit a bookkeeper. Anything. Just other than the names. I will also say it was hilarious to me the way certain social cues in media have changed. Because when Batman goes to talk to Bob Cratchit in jail (laughs) and Bob immediately lights up and is smoking, I'm like, oh, wow, I guess he's the villain. It's like, no, that is only a cue in the past, what, 20 years that only villains smoke? You go back to even, like, the mid-'80s, watch Ghostbusters, and they are just wall-to-wall cigarettes. But now in movies and TV, if someone's smoking, it's a clue that they're a villain. And it's taken me a second to be like, oh, wait, no, that's that was not the way it was in the 1940s and 1940s. Everybody smoked. Everybody smoked all the time. Gross. Yes. No no argument there. I also like that in that scene, Batman goes into the cell and he's like, Bob Cratchit, I'm Batman. Oh, oh, it's yeah, you're you're Batman. I guess you are. I don't think a lot of guys walk into the jail cell dressed in a bat costume. Just saying, unless Gotham is an even weirder place than I thought it was, if you're showing up like that, you're probably Batman. Probably. 
Now, the uh, the climax of the story comes when we get the guy who actually killed uh, the Night Watchman. We have Batman dressed up as the ghost of the Watchman, and uh, he confronts him and plays to his guilty conscience. And then, of course, he confesses in front of the police. And as, as I was reading that, I thought to myself, you know, assuming he was properly Mirandized, uh, which he wouldn't have been since the 1940s, that's probably a good confession. A very Hamlet moment. Much more Hamlet than Christmas Carol. I also like that he's got Jim Gordon there completely gaslighting this guy. I don't see anything. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and also, Bill Finger, I have a feeling, like, didn't quite entirely know how some of these procedures dealing with the legal system worked. Going to Gordon to ask to see the prisoner, a guy who's already been convicted and is in the pen, you'd go to the warden. I don't think the commissioner oh. of police can grant that permission. Oh, this is one of the things I hated about law-abiding citizen. Did you ever see that? No. I know it, of it, but I've never seen it. It had Chief O'Brien in it uh, with Cole Meany, right? Uh, in like kind of a, a big role. Uh, Jamie Foxx and the hunk from 300. Gerard uh, Butler. Yes, yes. He was in the lead, right? So the whole story is about this this guy uh, who, I don't know, his family dies or something. Uh, so he like takes revenge against the system. But he's been in this prison the whole time. But but the thing is, is he's awaiting trial. So he shouldn't be in a prison. He should be in a jail. It's the same kind of like, you don't really know how the system works, do you? Right. Because this guy, if this guy has been convicted of murder, he's in prison, which would have a warden. You yes. can't go to the tombs and talk to the cops to get in to see him. Also, that panel of Jim Gordon, when he's talking to Jim Gordon to be let in to see him, doesn't look like Gordon. The guy has no mustache or anything. It's It, it almost felt like Bill Finger wrote, you know, he's going to see Commissioner Gordon, and somebody drew a completely different character. But this was the golden age. Things were a little different. We also had a, a almost 66-esque death trap, which has a great way out that Batman takes. We're going to dump you into a water tank on the roof of the building and you'll drown. Frankly, I think you'd almost probably freeze to death before you'd even drown. Like the hypothermia would kick in because it's the dead of winter and it's snow everywhere. But, or I guess the, the cold water would knock you out and then you would drown but i'd be more worried about it being desperately cold water yeah batman plugging the the intake pipe so no more water could come in and then hoping that someone would run a bath or something to lower the levels and then and then think is trying to wash off ink that batman spilled on him and in his haste he leaves his sink running which then enables Batman to wait out the water and not drown. And throughout the whole scene, Robin is just so like, just let me die, Batman. Multiple I'm, times. I'm ready to die, Batman. It's a good death. Oh, oh, dicky boy. No, it's a Christmas story. Boys, Young boys don't die in Christmas stories. Even at this point, even in 1942, Robin is still a friggin' pun machine. 
he he smacks a guy with a coat hanger and oh hope you don't mind this hanging on your chin oh wow that was not an invention of the 60s robin was punning from the very beginning of course i definitely didn't think of any inappropriate things when uh robin's <laughs> throwing around a coat hanger all, all i was thinking was mommy dearest no wire hangers. No wire hangers. Batman, dearest, I could totally see someone someday doing that. Maybe if Jeff Lemire comes back for Robin and Batman Two, Batman will be smacking Robin around with a wire hanger. You know, I had a I had a fling who wanted us to watch Mommy Dearest. That was very strange choice. But I took a high school date to Passion of the Christ. I don't make good decisions. I like to say that it amazes me to this day that Amber is still with me 17 later, seventeen years later when the first two movies we went to see were X-Men The Last Stand and Superman Returns. Hey, Superman Returns was not bad. Superman Returns is not bad. I mean, it's poison now. Now, yes. It was a little too up its own, but with the Christ imagery on Superman... But then again, then came Zack Snyder, who doubled down on that even harder. I always think about that that moment with like Superman with the stained glass window. I'm like, really? Really? Like, yeah, you had to go into it that hard. At the very end, we also get a nice little Christmas message of Batman talking about how, yes, Santa Claus is real in the, the way that he's the spirit that we all should share and there's a little christmas you know in front of a christmas tree with bruce and dick and jim gordon and linda page who is bruce's love interest at that point i was gonna ask who that was yeah it's just linda page they'd forgotten julie madison and quickly cobbled together another bland love interest she is even more forgettable like they, they've brought back julie madison a couple times nobody ever brings back linda page Linda Page is is just in the the annals of history as yet another of Bruce Wayne's forgettable girlfriends. So we we're to believe that in this scene, Batman has asked Commissioner Gordon to come over to Bruce Wayne's manor. Where Bruce Wayne is, we don't know. Uh, and then Batman has also asked Bruce Wayne's girlfriend to come over so that they could have a nice. Uh, holiday moment with Robin. Yeah. In a pre-Alfred world, so there wasn't even Alfred to let anybody into the mansion. Jim knew that the, the rock with the, the key under it. <laughs> uh, but again, like, Bruce is nowhere, and Linda is just content to just do whatever Batman says. He's Batman. You do what Batman says. It doesn't have to make sense. No. That last page isn't canon. That last page is just there. <laughs> None of this is canon, let's be fair. Even back in the day, there was no such thing as canon in the Golden Age. It was just, let's keep throwing shit at the wall and see what sticks. Harvey Dent was introduced <laughs> as Harvey Kent. And then it just changed. Does The Simpsons acknowledge that some of the stuff that they do is not canon? They don't so much acknowledge that some of the things aren't canon as occasionally call back to weird bits of things and are like, yeah, we remember, but we're going to forget again. 
There was an American Dad episode this season, and they literally made the joke that, oh, yeah, some of those episodes are totally not canon. I'm trying to think. I The one I remember is there's an episode where Lisa... It's one of these things where it's like, it's meant to be funny, but it's really not. Lisa's cat dies, and then she gets another cat, and it dies, and she loses multiple cats until she finds another cat who looks identical to the original cat. And at the end, she's like, I'm just going to call you Snowball 2 so we don't have to get you a new bowl. And Principal Skinner walks up. Well, that's awfully convenient. Oh, isn't it Principal Temzarian? I'll be going now. Is a reference to the one where it turned out Skinner <laughs> wasn't really Skinner, but was instead Armin Temzarian, a guy who was in the real Skinner's platoon in Vietnam. Yeah, the, one of the, the episode that many people say The Simpsons jumped the shark with, Principal and the Pauper, which I disagree with because that's commentary. It's like if you take it as part of the canon, it is sort of weird. But if you take it as a commentary on sitcoms swapping out actors and characters, it's actually a pretty decent commentary on that. But let it never be said that fans of anything are willing to pay attention to commentary when they can instead bitch about something. Oh, bitching's more fun. And on the note about, you know, complaining and saying things are better than other things. I think that clever segue means it's time, but Batman number nine, Christmas on the big board. We have 339 stories on the big board. Number one is still the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman year one. Down at 50 is Identity Crisis, not that one. The issue where Tim Drake becomes Robin. And coming in a family-friendly 69, it's Batman and Robin and Howard. At 100 is the Golden Age story, Robin Dies at Dawn. At 150 is the first arc of Gotham Academy. At 200 is Blades, one of my favorites, despite its ranking. Number 250 is Snapper Carr, the Super Trader from JLA. At 300 is the first appearance of Poison Ivy. And all the way down at the bottom, there's the White Knight. Boo! The Christmas boo. What are we thinking here? So we got Batman number one, the cat, at 245. Uh, I don't think this beats that. No. Does it beat... Speaking of beats, Commissioner Gordon walks a beat at 251. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. This is a a better story. We got another one that's a little later in between there. Uh, Batman of All Nations. I I think Batman of All Nations. I like the twist at the end with the guy impersonating one of the Batman. I think that might be a little bit better. I would agree. So we're talking somewhere in between 245 and 251 then. Yeah, even the tighter range between 247 and 251. Yeah. For all of its faults, the balls to the wall madness of year two, I would probably take over this. But do we think below that is that Batman Etrigan Brave and the Bold? I think this might top that. Yeah, so new 249, I think. Sounds good to me. Our second story of the night is A Christmas Riddle. 
This is Batman and Robin Adventures number three. The writer is Paul Dini with pencils by Ty Templeton, inks by Rick Burchett, colors by Linda Medley, letters by Tim Harkins, and edited by Darren Vincenzo and Scott Peterson. The cover date is January of 1996. The Riddler has taken hostages at Gotham's Peregrinators Club, and he has declared he is there to solve the ultimate riddle, who is Batman. But the Dark Knight knows that nothing is ever as it seems when the Riddler is involved. So, well, to begin with, as pointed out, this is a Dini, which was pretty uncommon in these adventures books. Dini coming on to write, or anybody from the, the series coming on to do an issue was a pretty big deal because it was usually reserved for annuals and specials and big things. So I guess a Christmas story is kind of a big deal, but it is of note that Dini was not really a comic book writer at this point. He'd written, again, a couple annuals and Mad Love. So this is, is fairly early in his career as a comic book writer. You know, for all that I have said about his work, it's an interesting career path to go from television to at least having a little bit of a run in the main, you know, DC Comics line. Like, you know, we've read more than a handful of his issues on Detective. So whatever you want to say about the content, it's uh, it's an interesting career path. And this story really feels like an episode of the animated series. When he was doing these stories, he was writing within those bounds and was not stretching it to do a lot of stuff that, you know, you couldn't have gotten away with thanks to standards and practices. This is pretty much a straight episode of the animated series. Yeah, it feels like one that they just didn't, you know, make for whatever reason, right? Uh, didn't come up right in the calendar or whatever. I wish I'd thought about it and found the exact quote or whatever, but I know Dini at one point said that the Riddler is the hardest Batman villain to write because a Riddler story needs to hang together on the rewatch. The clues, everything he's doing needs to work the second time because if you're just throwing stuff at the wall in that case, it doesn't fly. Because the whole point is it's supposed to be an intricate mystery. And this one stretches that a little, but the clues are there. This is an okay Christmas story. We've read stories, we've read plenty of stories where Bruce is reckoning with the legacy of Thomas Wayne and his legacy in Gotham. And this one doesn't rank terribly high in that lot of stories for me. The Thomas Wayne stuff in here feels like it's kind of tacked on to give a little more emotional resonance to the story. Yeah, and if I was going to have something that was more fully developed on that side, I'd want to see Bruce uncomfortable at sort of the more schmoozing aspects of this club. But we actually don't see Bruce in the club, right? Because Batman is off being Batman, and then this disaster happens at the club because of the Riddler. And, I mean, yes, you get to the end, 
and Bruce shows up and helps them rebuild the club by giving them a large donation. But it just feels like a somewhat forced speech about how, you know, he reconsidered his priorities after his parents died and doesn't really see himself as a person who joins things, but his father's legacy is still here. And so he feels he needs to be. I would have rather, as you said, seen a little more earlier on, even if there was a scene at the very beginning of Bruce not going, telling Alfred that he got the invitation yet again and isn't going. It is a nice moment when he gets into the club and sees the portrait of his father and says the thing about he knew someone once who said he couldn't wait to bring his son for his first club Christmas. But that all seems very much like this is a very action-y, very Batman-forward story. So because it's Christmas, it felt like there needed to be something to make it more than that. Mm. Oh, Matt, I was just thinking, and I, I gave myself a Dini. It's an all-men's club. The, I can't have one Dini story that isn't ruined for me. That's on you, dude. Ah. You look for this stuff in a Dini oh, story. come on! It's not that hard. He didn't have to write it as an all-men's club. I can't argue that, but at the same time, it, there's also... You remember the original appearance of the Peregrinators Club? I do not know. It's in Harley and Ivy. And it's specifically an all men's club there because Harley and Ivy bust in and Ivy gives a whole speech about the patriarchy. So he's using something that was established for a specific reason why it was an all men's club. All right, all right. You look for malice aforethought where there might just be laziness. And at least the Riddler, despite having the, you know, leggy lady hench people, th there's nothing there that's off kilter. And, and yes, Riddler totally does mansplain to Summer Gleason, but that's Eddie. That is Eddie to a T. Eddie mansplains to women, men. It's not even mansplaining. It's Riddler-splaining. That's what he does. He's just an ass. It's cool to see Riddler making those connections, though, the logical steps to who might be Batman. I mean, it is not that hard to figure out. No. Again, I think it was Scott Snyder who pointed it out in, I think it was My Own Worst Enemy. The trick isn't deducing that Bruce Wayne is Batman. It's proving that Bruce Wayne is Batman. But also, here there are at least a couple of other logical suspects when you get down to it and yes one the of father them... and son duo who are world-class gymnasts right and the family who has the two twin strapping young grandsons whose parents were killed in a robbery and their grandfather the inventor was shot and left in a wheelchair who have the younger brother but that one's also, that's the clue. That's the one that Riddler picked because it let him leave the riddle to the Los Hermanos statue in the Peregrinators Club, which is very Riddler, the, the riddle within the riddle. And that Batman himself is always, you know, it says there's always a riddle, even if there doesn't seem to be. The other thing that I just want to say about, you know, the, the point of the all men's club, which is something that I hadn't even referenced in here, but it occurred to me 
with a different aspect. That's another thing with the nebulous time of Batman the Animated Series. It could exist in a point where that was not as unheard of as it is now. Because the thing that I specifically looked at when I thought of the nebulous timeline is that, you know, you see Summer Gleason, you see a TV broadcast, and all the TVs are still in black and white. There isn't color TV in Batman the Animated Series. And that's such a, one of those hallmarks of that weird timeline that this show exists in. But they had, you know, so much else, right? Batman had a computer. Yeah, Batman is a big computer. There aren't cell phones, but also this was 1990-something. There weren't cell phones. Or at least if there were, they were gigantic, clunky cell phones. But still, it's just, it exists in this very strange timeline, and there are little moments of that throughout. And in the end, Riddler also has, you know, the escape plan that is very Riddler. He has, you know, a disguise and slipping away in the chaos that he's created. And he almost got away with it. And also struck me as a plan that completely did not take into account any of his henchmen getting away with him. No, no. (laughs) Those people are replaceable. He was absolutely expecting Batman to show up. He was absolutely expecting to make that Christmas tree and all those Christmas tree centerpieces burst into flames so he could slip out on his own. Did he anticipate getting only one of the statues? No. He does specifically say when Batman comes up and holds out the one statue where he couldn't see his body. I told you idiots to get both statues. So that that one was just, he was assuming his hench people were dumb. Which they were. They're Riddler thugs. As we've seen, Gotham hench people are not exactly the uh, the creme de la creme of the intellectual set. Well, you know, the, you got to figure they're like football teams, right? There's got to be somebody who's highest on the pecking order. Somebody who pays the best, who's least likely to murder you. Probably Two-Face. I would think Harvey probably pays pretty well. And maybe not as likely to murder you. Right. I think Joker probably pays very well, but the odds of him murdering you arbitrarily are so very high. high. Yeah, that the only way he can continue to get hench people is by offering them money or them being, you know, zealots. That they have to be those kooks who, you know, think the Joker's message is the way to go. Who pays the worst? And this is a different question than who doesn't have to pay at all. I think Penguin pinches a penny pretty tight. Wah! Last quarter was bad! Wah, wah. I think it is very much a business for Oswald. So there, there is stuff like that. I think there's a good chance that... No. The Mad Hatter doesn't pay at all because they're all mind-controlled. Same with Ivy. Yep. Scarecrow rarely works with hench people. Like, he doesn't have as many hench people as the others, it seems. And again, I think he's often pinching a penny because he needs money for all the chemicals and the books. Interesting thought experiment. Yeah. And I'll say this, whatever you do, don't mention the idea of unionizing in front of the penguin. 
Oh no, no, Gotham, no. Only the docks are unionized. Everything else <laughs> in, in in Gotham is not. I think the ventriloquist and Scarface probably pay fairly well. Yeah, I, I like that one ventriloquist beat in um I think that was this issue. Yes. Uh, yeah, because they were they were watching at Arkham and uh, Scarface is like, why didn't you think of that, dummy? Bonks him on the head with his head. Him, Ivy, and Joker are watching in the uh the common room. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. When Riddler is laying out his theory as to who is Batman. One of the rich people was Graham Noland, which absolutely, there's no way that's a coincidence that that is not Graham Nolan. Come on. Oh, oh, has to be. Absolutely. Boy, Ty Templeton is, we've seen him do a lot of these stories over time. I mean, he did most of uh, season two and season three of Adventures Continue. But, ooh, his stuff is nice. There's some really gorgeous panels in here. Especially there's at the end when the Riddler's van has driven into a lake. And Robin's worried because Batman and Riddler went under. And Batman like surfaces carrying the Riddler and the statue. It looks really nice. In the colors here, Linda Medley is well known for various indie comics. She wrote and drew a series called Castle Waiting that was really, really good. But she has beautiful work on the colors here. The fire and the lighting of that looks really nice. Yeah, this all looks really sharp. Just really good quality visuals here. I don't think I have anything else. Oh, that means it's time to put Batman and Robin Adventures number three, a Christmas riddle on the big board. I'm trying to think if we have anything else aside from the annual from this series on here. I think we don't. I think we have a lot of the original Adventures volume. And some of the later stuff, but nothing else really from Batman and Robin Adventures. Only the the Phantasm Annual. I mean, this is good. I don't think this is top 100 good, though. No, I mean, this is not some kind of a world beater here. And as we stretch into almost 350 now, you know, it's, it's no sin to be 150, 200. No, no, uh, no, still lots of quality reads, as we say that now Blades is sitting exactly at 200. Okay, let's I'm trying to look at where some of the other adventures stuff is. For This does not beat that that Phantasm annual, which is at 106. That had a more important story to tell. Yes. It does not beat 146, which is that one with Summer Gleason and Clayface. That has oh, that's that... a good one. Yeah. Uh, the next one down is Batgirl Day One at 165. That first appearance of Harley in the comics. I think we're getting nearer to where we're, we're talking about here for that. But tell me about Captive Audience, 177, Gotham Adventures. That's the one where Alfred is kidnapped and he is playing around with the, the kidnappers, playing them against each other. 
while the fam is fighting their way through a mob so they can go and rescue him. Hmm. That's cute. That is a fun Alfred story. We're definitely in the right area there. The next one down below that, then we start getting into Adventures Continue area. I think this is probably above the Adventures Continue stuff, though. That's good. But again, this is punchy. And as much as I thought that the stuff with Thomas Wayne felt a little forced, it's still a nice beat. Yeah, I was just looking around, seeing where our lowest animated series stuff was. And it looks like it's Little Red Book at 259. Yeah. Lowest we go. Uh, the only there's a couple. The the dead man one is at two seventy two, and there's an annual down at two eighty one. But even then, that's the the very bottom. The majority of them are up in the mid. Yeah, the, the, they're up around there. I mean, this is above yeah. little red book. Definitely above little red book. For, well, just as a deanie. 205 is double talk with that new ventriloquist. This is above that. Ugh. Yes. So top 200. Yes. Top 200. I think captive audience is still, still better. It has that, that great beat at the end with Bruce and Alfred talking. I'm a sucker for some Bruce and Alfred material. I'm thinking mid 180s. Yeah, I'd put it above Fever for sure. All right, 182, who's scared? That Scooby-Doo team up with the Mystery Analysts of Gotham and Scarecrow? This has maybe a little more heart to it. That's fun, but there's more to this story. Right above that then? Yeah, I'm good with that. New 182. Good deal. Our final stories of the night are the Batman Volume 3 Annual Number 1, which is an anthology. This was cover dated of January 2017 and is five different stories of Batman set around the holidays and snow. We'll give the creatives as we discuss each of these five stories, because I think that that's just enough of a number of stories that it's not like it's a black and white miniseries where there's 40 stories. So I think we can hit each creative theme as we hit each story. I will say at the outset, I think these are perfectly in order from best to worst. Yeah. I think the (laughs) the first two, I think depending on my mood might shift around a little, but beyond that three, four and five, absolutely. Because by the end, it's pretty weak sauce, compare, especially compared to the Blah. early stuff. The first story is Good Boy. This is written by Tom King, with art by David Finch, colors by Gabe Altayeb. All of these stories are lettered by Deron Bennett and edited by Mark Doyle and Rebecca Taylor. So we'll just do writer, art, and colors for the balance of the stories. Now, before we go any farther, let me ask you this. And this is not something we've ever really talked about. But as someone who is very knowledgeable in these sorts of things, historically, what is the purpose of an annual? An annual was there 
to allow for an extra issue of the book. It had to do with rules of publication that you could only have X number of issues in a year. And so they released annuals to get around certain weird rules or to allow for the, the, the fifth weeks, things like that. This was here to fill holes in publishing schedules. Over the years, it became a way to do extra events, as we've seen with stuff like Armageddon 2001. And as the annuals were larger in page count always, they were a slightly more expensive book. But a lot of times they are fairly inconsequential. Back in the Golden and Silver Age, DC especially treated annuals as ways to get out reprint material. Mm. That Yeah, you, I think we have talked about that before. Yeah, that you would have six Golden Age stories reprinted in the Silver Age that had specific resonance for like hey these are important stories that you can't find anywhere so now's a chance to read them i would also say it is often a chance to try out new creators or to give you know an old head some work when they can't fit into the the regular stream of the book and we have that uh both of those here tonight Yes, and for good and ill. It's just an excuse to get another issue of a comic out. Uh, comics. Always been a business. Yep. Now, this first story is from the writer of Batman at this time. This is early in the Tom King run on the book. This is King's first Eisner winner. This short won for best short story the year it was released. And it's it's a good story. This is early Tom King Batman. When we had not gotten tired of his bullshit. And there is comparatively very little of that bullshit in this book. Although I will say, even the dogs in Tom King's stories have PTSD. Uh, and of course, the story has this strict structure of... We are getting these clips of time in the lead up to Christmas, these snapshots as Alfred is slowly training Ace. So even in this, we see Tom King at his formalist best. I have to go back and see, because there's a line in here referencing Kite Man. And this is early enough in King's work. This is, if not the very first, one of the first references to Kite Man in Tom King's Batman run. This is a good story. This is not up there with some of these days. Annual 2, which is a very high place on the list. I also got to go back and look and figure out how many Tom King Batman stories are set around Christmas, because there's a bunch. There's that Batcat (laughs) special that is one Christmas a year for 40 issues. I know he did a, a Swamp Thing winter story too. Tom King's written a bunch of Christmas stories. He has got the three things he writes about. Some some writers really do like that. 
And boy, the, the setting the the bit at the pound made me think of this new book he's about to do over at Boom, which is Animal Farm set in a dog pound, Animal Pound. This is a proto for that, maybe. Did you notice in here that when Bruce enters the Bat Cave, he uses the piano, the thing from uh, Batman Begins from the Nolan movies, as opposed to the clock? I did not notice that. Yeah, he he plays the piano, which. I've got to wonder if this was a case of the script wasn't, it wasn't a, a detail. I can't imagine it wasn't a detailed script. He's Tom fricking King. Everything has got to be to the panel, but it made me wonder if, you know, Finch, because King would know that it's the clock that Finch just put that in because he'd seen the Batman movies more recently. And I just was, I rewatched Batman Begins recently, so it made me remember that that's the entrance in Batman Begins to the cave. And I was like, oh, he's using the piano. Isn't that interesting? The end here is adorable. It being Christmas and a Bruce giving Ace the ma- his, his Bathound mask. And boy, Alfred, you forgot to give me a present. World's greatest detective indeed. Uh, I do love Alfred as being playfully sullen. It's it's a great note to go out on. And this isn't clearly set anywhere in the timeline, but I've got a year two vibe here because there's no hint of Robins. So I picture this pretty early in the timeline at a point when Bruce hasn't had a lot of sidekicks and contacts with other people. And this is Alfred trying to give him that. And, oh, it's always so sweet when Alfred works to get Bruce a little more human. This is the one of my least favorite Bat costumes. Is it? Is that still in that costume here? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't remember the... This is the, the purple end of New 52 into Rebirth costume? Yeah, with the bright yellow outline. Oh, see, I remember that in the other stories. I didn't remember that in this one. In which case, that sets it in a very specific point in the timeline much later, because... I I, I, I don't think we can pay attention with the costumes. That costume is used in all of the other stories. Yeah, you're right. Damn, that is that costume. I mean, at this point, Damien is around with his, you know, legion of bat pets. Wait, so, wait, it's not it's it's not the Neil Adams costume. No, it's got the yellow outline. It's the one that's introduced in Batman 5051, somewhere at the end of the Snyder run. Yeah, only the Neil Adams one has the the traditional Batman costume. The rest of these use the costume that Bruce is wearing in the comics at that moment. So I guess my my point in the timeline was incorrect. Interesting. It just, it reads like an earlier story than that. Yeah, and I think to your point, the absence of Robins does place it at a certain time in the Batman story. So I, I like to my point, I think we just have to ignore what he's wearing. And we, we go based on the vibes, Matt, yeah. on the vibes. Yeah, I guess there is, you do see the Robin costume in the background, when Alfred is training Ace. So I guess there is at least a Robin, but yeah, still. 
you see the page after that, there definitely is the him playing the piano to enter the Batcave. But it, it's a nice story. It's a fun story. I can absolutely see why it won the Eisner. I am a cat person, but I still respect and appreciate a dog. Just because I am pro-cat does not mean I am anti-dog. I I completely agree. Having become sick to death of cats, living with a house full of cats, I, I really appreciate a good dog. <laughs> I don't have the time for a dog all that walking. I would have to have at least one less podcast to have a dog. We'll record the show on your walks with yeah. the, with the dog. I still love the sullen independence of a cat, though I am not quite ready for a new cat yet. That's That's still a ways away. The second story is Silent Night, written by Scott Snyder and Ray Fox, with art by Declan Shalvey, and Colors by Jordi Belair. I love Declan Shalvey's art in general. And I think this is a gorgeous looking story. Especially, Shalvey does motion so well. And so to have these acrobats and the catches and all that, it looks so nice. And this too returns to one of my favorite Batman story themes, the idea that Gotham can be okay for a second. Yes. That you can rest and you can have peace and there can be joy in the midst of all of this misery. Uh, and that Batman sometimes has to understand and think about that. And I love that as a story beat. Hard agree. That's why this one in my head can at moments, I think I might like it even more than the Ace story because I like that theme. It's got that Snyder... Batman using tech in intense ways, but not quite as insane as the Batman brain download device. The forever the, Batman. Right, the forever Batman device. But instead, okay, he's basically hacked GCPD dispatch and gets certain calls routed to him. Bat signal 2.0, as Alfred somewhat mockingly, I think, calls it. I like that he's he's on the comms with Alfred while this is going on. And Alfred, the thing about the SAS and enjoy it while it lasts. Bombardment will shortly resume is a great line. Oh, and the, Alfred. And then just the, the little smile that Bruce has at the top of the next to the last page as he watches these acrobats. Because I guess if you haven't read the story, you know, he has this new version of the bat signal of sorts, and he gets word that there's a possibility of a terrorist attack. Because there's all these people all in black with red coats walking into the middle of a square in Gotham. And they drop the coats and they climb the statue and they jump off and they're acrobats and they're just putting on a Christmas Cirque du Soleil esque performance. And it's like a flash mob thing. They do it and they refuse money. And during their performance, there are no calls. It's just this quiet moment. And Bruce watches and he smiles. And then the performance ends and there's another call and off he goes. In a beautiful, mostly splash page at the end of him diving away himself with his cape unfurled behind him. 
It's a very quiet story. There's minimal action, but that's what it's there for. And I like that. I like that beat in the story, as you said. And for as much as I dislike this costume, it does look nice here. Yeah, again, Declan Shalvey. This guy can can draw the heck out of something and make this, this somewhat clunky costume work. Next up is the not-so-silent night of the Harley Quinn. This is written by Paul Dini with art by Neil Adams and colors by Neil Adams. This one is riffing, obviously, off of the Silent Night of Batman, which we did in our very first Halloween episode, which was drawn by Neil Adams. Uh, Very first Christmas episode. I said Halloween, didn't I? You sure did, bud. Yeah, I meant meant Christmas. It's okay. It's, It's been a long night. And let me just say here, poor Matt, the internet has been killing him tonight. By the time you listen to this, he will have done a masterful editing job uh, getting rid of our 17 different false starts and trying to get this damn episode recorded. But please understand, he's had a go of it. And this is this is even before he has to edit all of those false starts uh, out. And so he will have had another go of it. <laughs> so uh, appreciate all the hard work you've done and all the hard work that is to combat. It will be a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> god bless us everyone this actively riffs on that story this is batman and harley in the batmobile after batman finds harley trying to break into gotham central to drop off cookies and a bomb to blow up joker if he was there and the original silent night of batman is the story of batman is caroling with the gcpd and we see the people around Gotham inspired by Batman to do the right thing. Here, we see the people of Gotham inspired by Harley to do the right thing in unpredictable and violent ways. Yeah, the sequential storytelling here is not good at some spots, right? I can't tell if Batman is observing these things or... These things are just happening. I don't like that some of this involves kids beating up other kids with bats. The layouts aren't great. It's not the best. No. Neil Adams still could do it towards the end of his life, but his stuff was not always as great as it was in his halcyon days. And this is definitely that. I also do not understand, and I don't know if I would chalk this one up to Deanie being Deanie or maybe just Neil Adams being a weirdo, but why it's, you know, the dead of winter and Harley is in a bikini top seems a weird choice. Yeah. Yeah, there's somebody else in a miniskirt in this as well. Which makes me think that it's Adams because... Maybe Dini put in notes about Harley's costume, but I can't imagine he put in specific notes about the miniskirt on the woman dressed in Harley colors. I think he probably said she has to dress in Harley colors, but that's about it. And I mean, the whole point of the Silent Night of Batman is that there isn't the violence. And here, and again, this is because it's Harley and it's chaos. None of this is solved without violence. 
and in the end it's not quite a you know batman buying the dress for harley moment but you get a instead of dropping her off at the city limits like he said he would do he drove her all the way back to coney island where she was living at this point in her continuity so it's like oh he does have a soft spot for harley after all and that makes us try to figure out how far away gotham is from coney island well assuming that Gotham is where they say it is, it's probably driving a normal car two hours and change. Driving the Batmobile, probably considerably less because Gotham's in South Jersey. So it's not that long a drive. And if Batman said that he was, you know, going to drop her off at the city limits after his patrol, Batman patrol takes a couple hours. I think the the timeline can work. I thought about that. You really want Harley Quinn just hanging out in the Batmobile while you're doing patrols? Like, what do you? What if you have to stop? Right. The whole idea of you patrolling is you being able to respond to uh, to crimes. This is this is some poor planning on Batman's part. This is just Paul Dini having fun. I suppose that's allowed. Yeah, for Christmas, it's allowed. What do you think, though, about Harley Quinn being in a Christmas story? Yeah, again, a weird choice, as she is canonically Jewish. Yeah. You could have just said she was dropping things off for Hanukkah. Yeah, that wouldn't have been that hard. It actually could have been fun to be a Hanukkah story instead of a Christmas story. But, and especially Dini would know that. Dini's the one who made it clear she was Jewish. But, what are you going to do? Yeah. But after this is when things start to really... Okay, first story, first two stories, pretty much pitch perfect. This one got some issues, but it is at least kind of fun and seasonally, you know, Christmassy themed. And then we start to see a, a somewhat major drop off. Because the next story is Stag. This is uh, written by Steve Orlando with art by Riley Rossmo and colors by Ivan Plasencia. I love Riley Rossmo. Like I'm a fan of his art and I think it works pretty okay with this story, but this one is a deeply melancholic, which is okay for a Christmas story, at least when it comes to the Batman stuff. But it also is there just to serve as a prologue to Orlando's Batman Shadow miniseries from later the later that year. Because that's where this gets followed up. I had no idea. It took me a minute to remember. So I was like, I recognize this, the, st- the stag villain. But where did I? I was like, oh, right. It's from the Orlando Rosmo Batman the Shadow miniseries. That's what it's there for. And it uses the seriously obscure Wonder Woman villain, Prime Minister Blizzard, who is one of DC's legion, legion of ice-themed villains. Hey, uh, can I use Freeze in this story? No. Who else you got? Captain Cold? Nope. Nope. Killer Frost? Nope. Icicle? Icicle Jr., No, because I think this is a conscious choice. Orlando, as we have seen with much of his X-Men work, 
as he's written a lot of X-Men stuff, Orlando is one of those writers who freaking loves a deep cut. And so he absolutely actively chose Prime Minister Blizzard because he is the deepest of deep cuts. At a certain point, you're just showing off. You're just saying, oh, look how smart I am. Look what look what I can remember. It certainly doesn't do anything to engage your average reader. And he's a gag villain nowadays. The idea that he's the prime minister of an ice kingdom who wants to bring about the ice age again. He's not a particular for a story that in the end, when you get to the end of it and is Bruce sitting in Wayne Manor brooding on the fact that this other billionaire who's this philanthropist who's a good man who his mother knew and looked up to is eventually going to die that we're all going to die it seems sort of strange to have Prime Minister Blizzard as your villain when you could have done Mr. Freeze who is an equally melancholic character point in its favor I do like that Alfred made Batgelt for Kate Kane for Hanukkah and then on the final page, this good billionaire guy gets murdered by a villain. End of story. The stag is coming in 2017. There you go. The stag came and was promptly forgotten. But speaking of came and then promptly forgotten, we get to the final story of the night, which is insecurity what a mess. edition. Yeah. Writer is Scott Brian Wilson with art by Bilquis Evely and colors by Matt Lopez. It's pretty. I love Bilquis Evely's art. Looks real nice. That's the most I can say for it, though. It is a weird, messy story that introduces a... Calling this villain half-baked is an insult to things that are half-baked. Aww. This is a quarter-baked villain. We get very little of who they are, what their motivation is, and their power, quote-unquote. She kills you with your own DNA. What does that mean? So, uh, so I got curious about Scott Brian Wilson, and I, I looked him up on uh, Twitter. Apparently he did the uh, the Pennyworth series that we will get around to one day. When someone um, Patreon requests it, absolutely. Hey, it might not be that bad. I haven't read it. That's uh-huh. true. Neither have I. We need another Alfred episode. Yeah. And uh, he's got this listed as his fourth credit. Now, actually, looking at his credits, he wrote True Cult with Liana Kangas. True Cult's a ton of fun. I really like True Cult. But yeah, but, in, in his own bio, it is Kilmore, True Cult, Pennyworth, Batman Annual. He also wrote at least one of the stories in the uh, IDW Star Trek Waypoint anthology. Oh, that and, was pretty good. Yeah. Listen, good writers can write not great comics. That's and very true. I'm not saying that he's a bad writer. I'm saying that this isn't a good story. No. If your punchline, your final beat is Batman using a nerve toxin on people for shits and giggles, yeah, mm -mm, you have lost the point. 
and then threatening to break their jaws because they're paralyzed. Yeah. Mm-mm. Not I, good. There's a kernel of a really interesting idea here of Scarecrow spreading micro doses of fear toxin around Gotham. So everyone isn't terrified, but is just sort of having an anxiety attack. And as someone who has anxiety attacks, that sucks. Even if you're not overcome by phobia, that is a shitty thing to do, especially around Christmas, Jonathan Crane. I thought that we had read him before, and turns out we have. You're you're never going to remember where. No, I don't. He had a canceled Batman story that was subsequently published. Oh, the Let Them Live. Yeah, that was that was pretty good. I mean, you know what? Hey, early work. That that's what it boils down to. Early work. I feel like this needed more pages to make me better understand and care about this villain who had never appeared anywhere before that I was really at a loss as to why Haunter was a threat and she gets taken out so easily by Batman in the end and Scarecrow goes down equally easily in the end and it just it it felt like there were some ideas here and it needed more than the page count it was given. As I said, awfully pretty. I love Bill Quist Evely. The Sandman universe stuff that they drew was tremendous. And again, I like the panels of the people in Gotham and each of them sort of muttering an insecurity. Because that's what this boils down to, that everyone's insecurities are brought to the surface. It isn't even totally an anxiety attack. It's their insecurities again it's pretty awful for crane to do that kind of thing there is something so petty about that that it does somewhat fit scarecrow and the one or two panels we see of evilly scarecrow or evilly i'm not sure how it's pronounced are pretty great i would have liked to have seen more of their scarecrow you want this to just be a scarecrow story. Right. I, I don't like see... that's that's the most interesting beat here. It's you know, it's not so much Haunter and how she can kill people. Oh, okay, fine, whatever. Um, but the the more fascinating thing is this different concept of, of fear gas and, and how it can be as equally paralyzing to people. And we get to the end and it's also very, very chatty. This story it feels pretty overwritten. Which and is Bat- a shame when you have good art. Yeah. Batman's speechifying at Scarecrow and Haunter at the end. And and you also know, like, he's basically saying, hey, I've now paralyzed you with nerve toxin. I can bring you back to Arkham or I can leave you here to freeze to death. Up to you. No, it's not. He's Batman. He's going to bring them back so they don't freeze to death because he's Batman. Just making uncharacteristic decisions. First to poison them and then the second to say something like that. Like, no. This story just, this one doesn't work. No. 
interesting. Yes. Pretty, but no. Uh, So, I mean, we've now touched on all five stories. A lot of stories. That means it's time for Batman Annual number one on the big board. All right. So the preponderance of evidence here says this is not going as high as either of the previous Batman Volume 3 annuals. Because the previous Batman Volume 3 annuals are at respectively numbers 7 and 37. Yeah, no. Man, Father's Day. It might be low at 37. That That is such a good read. And such a good Alfred story. Yes. Um, yeah, if this was just the first two stories, I think we'd have an argument for top 50, maybe even higher than that. But it really, really drops off in quality. You know, the first two might be top 50, top 30. The last two or three are maybe top 250. Yeah, exactly. They they don't fall into the problematic range, but they don't fall much higher than that. Insecurity diversion is very close to problematic. It's hard to weigh good with not good. Um, Especially when it's this close to 50-50. Yeah. Because when we look at like the Batman black and whites, in those cases, volume one is up at number 10 because that is four issues at five stories an issue. It's 20 stories, 18 of which are bangers. There is so little in there that is not good. And then Black and White Volume 3 is at 75 because, again, the majority of them are quite good. This is a 50-50, so we have to find some sort of compromise place. And that's tricky. So the Detective Comics Volume 2, number 27 the other anthology we did, that's down at 191. None of those stories are as good as the best stories here. I'm sitting here and I'm trying to remember all of the stories in that anthology. I mean, the lead one was that retelling of uh, Case of the Chemical Syndicate, the most recent one. And the second is that somewhat trippy Greg Hurwitz, Neil Adams story. But then you've got that Tomasi Bertram, old Bruce Wayne with the whole family gathered around him at his 80th birthday story. And the Snyder Murphy forever Batman device story. And the the Mike Barr, Guillaume March Batman goes to a world where his parents were never killed and it sucks. And the like three page Francesco Francavia, he saves James Gordon Jr. and Barbara after they're in a car accident story. So Better Days is good. Old school has its charm. As we pointed out, 27 is probably the best thing Sean Gordon Murphy has been involved in when it comes to Batman. But the others there are lukewarm at best. Yeah. 
down to the that case of the chemical syndicate, which is not very good at all. I think on average, because the first two stories here are so strong, this goes above that. Yeah. I just think on principle, I don't think this could go in the top 150. Right. Because we also have uh, the audio adventure special number one at 164, which granted is written by one writer, but is an anthology with lots of artists and lots of little stories. I like that more. Because again, yeah. on average, that is better. Yeah. So that puts us between 164 and 191 to begin with. I think that Pulp Annual from a few weeks back was better at 169. Yeah. But speaking of on average, we have the opposite at 179. Super heavy, which has two great issues and eight that very wildly so i think this might go above super heavy so now we're between 169 and 179 much more limited range i'm gonna throw a number at you okay 174 what the difference i love it yeah 174 it is because there you've got underworld unleashed which has the, the main miniseries plus those two Batman one-shots. So you've got good and middling quality mixed in. So I think the new 174 is the way to go. Whew. And there we go. Made it through another Christmas. And before we say Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night, next week it's once again New Year's week. So it's time for three alternate versions of Batman. we'd like to thank our patreon backers dan grove josh wheel mrs abigail hartbaum asimov fangirl tony thornley go youths sam hopper john wickham robert secundus bobby two bucks tim rooney george reggioli david wheel alexander wheel and matt mcthorne for this mcthorney you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and the ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLess1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Batchat roundup of new bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.